Welcome to Bethany Bible Fellowship, where we are all about the glory of God and the good of His people. It is a privilege to be able to share this online resource with you, and we pray that it is a blessing to you, that it builds up your faith and encourages you on in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Well, this morning, I ask you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 21. We're going to actually read together this morning. It's been a long time since we've done this. We're going to read together, beginning from verse 17. So if you would stand with me as we read from God's Word, we'll show honor to our great God and the the revelation that He has given to us. Acts chapter 21, beginning in verse 17, it says this, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed. They're zealous for the law. And they've been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men, purify yourselves along, yourself along with them, and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. This all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So there are some times when we read God's word, and uh, we know that all Scripture has been in, in inspired, has been breathed out by God. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished for every good work. And yet we read things like this, where Paul is instructed, go pay for these four men to have their heads shaved, and we go, <laughs> what? What does this have in terms of relevance for my life. What's God going to teach me through this one? And to that we pray, Lord, Lord, teach us what we need to learn this morning. Show us what we need to see. Transform us as we have yet to be transformed for your glory. Amen. There are so many strange moments in life, are there not, where we ask ourselves the question, what's the point of this. We are confused, we're frustrated, sometimes we're bored, sometimes we're hurting, we're just not getting it. And yet, we know that does not mean that God is not working. 
Amen? In fact, it's very often on the other side of those moments when we go, ah, that's what God was going to teach me. In fact, this was one of the most powerful lessons of my entire life. And that is what I pray as we examine Acts chapter 21, 17 to 26, we're going to experience as well. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that Paul is at the end of his third missionary journey. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He wants to get there in a timely fashion. He wants to get there before the celebration of Pentecost. Pentecost was a big deal. The birthday of the, of the early church. But not only did he want to get there for that, he had collected offerings to give to people in Jerusalem who were in need, Christians who were impoverished. And they'd benefit from that, getting it sooner than later, Right? As we noted last week, he knew what lie ahead of him. There was a prophet that came to him that made it very, very clear what lies ahead is your arrest. You're going to be bound. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be delivered over to the Romans to be punished. But in the end, he and all of the other Christians with him, they knew that there was only one thing that mattered, one thing alone, and that was the glory of of God. May his will be done. So they go. And here in verse 17, Paul and his crew, they arrive. When he came to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. Certainly those who knew him were so happy to be reunited. Those who had never met him, well, they had heard stories. And for some, boy, it was, it was an honor to meet this man Others, they were just excited to hear Paul had, he came bearing gifts. He had gifts for us, and so they welcomed him gladly. Verse, verse 18 says this, On the following day, Paul went with us to James, and all the elders were present. Okay, so here we go. Paul steps into a meeting now, not with the entire church. There might be time for that later. But first of all, we want to meet with the leadership of the church. We're going to have an initial conversation. He had been gone for a while. Some things had happened. Now it's time to give a report. It's time to talk about what God had been doing. Here it is, verse 19. After greeting them, he related one by one, the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Okay, this is not a coffee shop conversation. This is not a casual get-together. This is a detailed report he's giving here. And it says, one by one, he starts accounting for all the things that happened. So he would have told them about Crispus, that synagogue ruler, and how that man, no one would have thought that this man in Corinth would place his trust in Jesus, but he did. And not only him, but his entire family. Yes, Paul would have told them things like that. He would have told them about the riot that happened in Ephesus and how they all went into the amphitheater, thousands of people, and there was danger. And the brothers were saying, don't go there, Paul. We're holding you back. It's too dangerous. He would have told them how God delivered them through the providence of, of the, the Gentile leaders there. He would have told them the story about he was preaching late into the night and a man named Eutychus fell out of the window to his death. And they would have been shocked. Oh my gosh, this is, this is terrible. 
And then what a relief to hear God raised him back to life. And I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if one of the guys there said, you know, Paul, I, I knew it was just a matter of time before someone keeled over at your preaching. <laughs> As Paul went on and on, it must have been fascinating to hear of adventure after adventure and how God was using his boldness and, and transforming the lives of people. Unlikely people were turning to Jesus, people who were enslaved to all kinds of despicable, horrible lifestyles, and they were just they were letting it go, and they were saying, no, that was darkness, this is light, I'm going there. And then to hear of the danger and to hear how God had delivered him again and again and again. Notice verse 19. It says something very, very important here. We could miss this. He related the things that who had done? God had done. Herein lies an important distinction of a Christian leader, really of, of any believer who is a godly believer. What they care about is the glory that goes not to themselves, it's the glory that goes to God. And that's what Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians 3. You may remember. He, he said to the Corinthians, what then is Apollos? You remember Apollos from, from our study, that guy from North Africa who came up and shared what he knew of God's word. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you have believed is the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but you know it was God who gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Do you see what he's saying here? Those Corinthian Christians, they were getting excited about the, the person that they had heard about Christ first from. The, 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 the first moment they, that they had this awakening to, to, to the truth. And, and I, I, I am all about Apollos. He, he, just, he just opened my, his teaching was incredible, so compelling. I so enjoy what he has to say. I'm trying really hard to follow in what he taught. And another guy said, no, 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 Paul, Paul is where it's at. Do you, do you understand? Apollos had some things to learn, right? Do you remember he was taken aside and then he learned the full gospel? No, 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 you should be on board with Paul. He had it clear from the beginning. It's all about him. And Paul tells him, no, 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 no. The messengers aren't the important ones. It's, it's the message and the one who does the transforming work within you to take that message and give you faith to believe it and transform you and cause you to, like a seed, sprout growth. It's all about God's glory. Paul was first and foremost about God's glory. Is the same true for your life, for mine? Is that where the glory goes? Or, or do we tend to look for opportunities to draw attention to ourselves, to muster up some sort of praise to get the accolades, the attaboys, or the high fives? And maybe you're here and you're saying, you know what, yeah, that's not really a problem for me. I'm not one who really wants attention. They can have it. I'll be glad to sit down there and let everyone else look at that person. I don't want to be looked like. I looked at, but, but then I got to ask us this. How do we feel when others are getting all the attention? When others are getting the praise 
Or what about this? Maybe they're not getting any praise, but you look at them and you see signs of success. And others are prospering. And others are growing. And others are be giving, being given more. Right? What do you think about that? It could have been a little awkward for James and the elders of this Jerusalem church, couldn't it? As Paul's exploits were laid out before them. How would they respond? What are they going to say? Well, here's what they say. When they heard it, verse 20, they glorified God. Here's a sign of spiritual maturity, right? It's very, very simple. It's very, very subtle. But here it is, right? It's not about the, the flashy the flashy stage. It is not about the massive crowds and the audience. It is not about the, the shiny white teeth and the sparkling eyes and the slick performance. It is not about that. It is about giving God the glory. This is a sign that these men had their priorities right it doesn't mean that they weren't fighting things on the inside. You and I fight those, those, those feelings and those, those desires inside, but we fight them with truth, right? We fight them with truth, and we say, we know right from wrong here. We know that we can't give into this. Yes, I have to push those feelings aside and say, no, 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 Jared, or whoever you are, the voice speaking to me on the inside, this, this is wrong. It's all about God. It's all about his glory. It's going to be so easy to be filled with jealousy. It happens to me all the time. It's so easy to feel like we're less significant <laughs> and, and get really intimidated. And think about it. You've been pressing on. You've been trying to be faithful. You've been trying to obey. You've been trying to honor God with your life, even making sacrifices for him. My life is not what it could have been because I decided to follow God and look at where I'm at. But they did the same thing over here, but look at where they're at. It can be so challenging and difficult. And I can imagine for these people looking at Paul and the glowing report and hearing of the adventures and the fantastic voyage and showing them, he's showing them the treasure that he collected from these people that didn't have a clue, but now they are in the kingdom of light. And look, they gave Look at all this treasure to be dispersed among your people here. This is incredible. But not only that treasure, the living, breathing treasure that he had with him standing right there. Look at these people. God brought them to faith in himself. Is this not incredible? What compares to Paul's success? Boy, I've been there. I've, I've looked at people across the way, and I've felt that intimidation. I've felt that envy, and I've been tempted to ask, God, why not me? Have you been there? God, God, why not? Why don't I have those same talents that these people have? Why can't I have the situation that they find themselves in? Why can't, can't I have that kind of attention? At least just a little bit more than I have right now. How about let's make it even a more personal here? God, why can't I have what they have? That house, that car, those parents, that kind of spouse that kind of family. 
just seems like they've got it together. They love each other. They're having these amazing family get-togethers. I don't have that. That kind of success at work. We could go on and on and on, right? And it, it, I, it strikes a chord in me. I imagine it strikes a chord in you. And that's where we need to remember that if our hearts are in the right place, they're not going to be curving back inward on themselves, are they? They're going to be looking upward and they're going to be saying, God, this is all about you and your glory. They're going to be looking upward, but they're also going to be looking outward. Correct? What is the good that God wants to bring to others through me? We know from 1 Corinthians 13, <laughs> love does not envy, doesn't boast, doesn't insist on its own way. It's not curved inward. That's not what we're called to. Paul gave glory to God, and in response, these elders of the church, they gave glory to God as well. And I don't know if anyone was singing at that meeting, but this was a worship service. Because God got the glory, he got the praise. God was doing things there as well. In Jerusalem, look at verse 20. They said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands are among the Jews of those who have believed? Thousands and thousands of people had come to faith in Jesus Christ in a place that was highly antagonistic to any, any alteration, any variation from Judaism. Christians were not liked there, right? We saw Peter thrown in prison time and time again. We saw Stephen stoned to death there in Jerusalem. This was a place where it was challenging for people to believe in Christ, and yet they were believing by the thousands. And so often we're impressed by numbers, are we not? So easy to look at numbers here and go, wow, this is so humble, this is so small compared to numbers out there. One thing that's very important for us to remember, that is that with the size comes sometimes issues. Because people, when they come to faith in Jesus Christ, the work inside of them is just beginning. It's just beginning. When you and I confessed our sin, looked to the cross of Christ and said, that is the thing that is going to purify me. Christ's blood shed. That washes away my sin. I now have new hope. I have a new future. I have a new lease on life. But at the same time, when that happened, we stepped into a continual process of refinement, did we not? Of transformation. It's not going to be finished for a while. It's not going to be finished until we see our Savior face to face. Then, he says, the work is going to be complete in us. But you know, right now, you're a work in progress. <laughs> I am a work in progress. As far as I think that I have come, I am not where I need to be. And you know what that means? That means when we get together, things are going to be messy. You gather a few of us Christians together, and we're not perfect. We're going to make some mistakes. 
We're going to talk over each other. We're going to offend one another. We're going to envy one another. We're going to have all sorts of things welling up inside, and it's going to get ugly, right? And that transformation process, boy, it needs to happen more and more and more. Like little kids growing up, we need to learn a thing or two. We got to take our fingers out of our noses and stop pointing them around at other people. We need to start letting go of bad habits. We got to start figuring out who we're listening to. We got to start being uh, able to discern what is right and good and true and, and what is not. That happens with just a few of us getting together. Now multiply that on the scale of the Jerusalem church where there are thousands and thousands and thousands of these people. Jews who had been reawakened to a new passion for the things of God. That's fantastic. In fact, James and the elders say in verse 20, they say, they are all zealous for the law. That's not a bad thing. They want to honor God with their lives. They've been reawakened to, to my life for his glory. That's what it's all about. And so they're seeking out what God has revealed to them in his word, and they're desiring to live it out in their lives. That's a wonderful thing. But you know, at the same time, there were some things that were not so good happening among them as well. Isn't it, isn't it the case? It's always the case that our enemy loves to jump on every single opportunity he has. Here are people with a newfound passion for God. At the same time, they're hearing reports. They're hearing things. We hear things, don't we? We hear little rumors all the time. We're suspicious of that person over there, that person over there, that person over there. And we start to entertain those thoughts and we start wondering, well, I don't have any firsthand information here, but, but I think maybe something's going on there because I'm hearing things that kind of line up in my mind. And they're hearing reports that Paul was telling people, telling Jewish believers, get rid of the law, don't follow that thing, don't follow anything God has revealed here, don't listen to Moses, don't circumcise your kids, get rid of all that kind of stuff. Man, wherever you find yourself in life, we need to know there is an enemy who is looking for a way to exploit the growth even, that is taking place in our hearts to lead us to sin. It's so true. We've got to be watchful, don't we? I think there's a verse about that. Be vigilant. <laughs> the elders tell Paul, they're zealous for the law. They've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. Was that true? No, it's absolutely untrue. Yes, Paul had spoken to the, the non-Jews, the Gentiles who came to faith in Jesus, and he said, you know what, you don't need to worry about being circumcised or following all of these Jewish traditions. It's Christ and nothing else. That's what you need, faith alone in Jesus. At the same time, he told Jewish believers, no, you don't need to abandon your faith. You don't need to abandon the customs. You don't need to turn from Moses. You don't need to not circumcise your kids. No, no. If he was telling them that, then why on earth would he have Timothy, a guy who was uh, both Jew and Gentile, had both of those roots in him, in his mother and father, why would he tell him, you know what, why don't you get, you need to get circumcised before we go minister over here? Why would he tell him to be circumcised? 
And why would Paul take a Nazarite vow and and leave the people in Ephesus, quickly go to Jerusalem in time to fulfill that vow? If he didn't care about any of the Jewish traditions and the Jewish law, well, why would he do those things? Paul, of course, knew that those things did not earn him salvation. But, But look where he came from. He tells us in Philippians, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But God had revealed to him the reality that those things could never be enough to save him. Philippians 3.9, he says that righteousness, it doesn't come through following laws. He says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You, You know, just thinking about this, it's likely that there are some of us here who are still holding on to the understanding that our presence under this roof, this place we call a church, it's helping earn us a place in heaven. And it's really important that we come to understand that's just not how this thing works. You can't earn it. The only thing that could earn that is what Jesus did on the cross. Any good thing that we do, any holy traditions that we keep, we need to understand they're not earning our salvation. They're the result of that salvation. They're they're worship, right? That's what we do. When we, we say when we come here on Sunday mornings, what are we coming to do? We're coming to worship. Not because our worship earns us salvation, but because of our salvation. Not to make some down payment on a future that we're hoping to purchase. Paul wasn't opposed to Jewish tradition, but he knew it wasn't necessary for salvation. But the reality of what he was actually teaching out there in the field and what people thought he was teaching out there in the field, they did not match up. They were not lining up. And James and the other elders, they knew disinformation, (laughs) it's being spread. In fact, it it is ablaze out there. Our church community disinformation is at the dinner table. They're hearing it. They know Paul. They, they, some of them are absolutely convinced that you are preaching the wrong thing. And you know what? Based on the political climate that we find ourselves in right now, this could be explosive. Did you know that Paul's arrival in Jerusalem was at a time when resentment toward Anything that was non-Jewish and resentment towards their Roman overlords, that was at a fever pitch at that moment. Has there ever been a time when you, uh, you knew maybe somebody who was kind of suspicious or resentful of the government? Has there ever been a time like that? Anybody? <laughs> Have you ever known anybody, a, a Christian, who they were so passionate about their politics that, that they looked out there, and if they saw even the slightest hint of capitulance to the government or, or conspiring with government or, or even affirming some of the government stuff, that they would label those people an enemy? Conditions in Jerusalem were such that it wouldn't take much at all to evoke the rage of any Jewish, loyal Jewish person toward anyone that they saw as a, either a traitor to the Jewish tradition or have any degree of friendship with what they considered the enemy. So what are we going to do? 
That was the problem before the elders in Jerusalem. What are, we, what are we going to do? And that's exactly what they say. What then is to be done in verse 22? They will certainly hear that you have come. We can't hide this. The news like this gets around Paul. And that's when they come up with a plan. So here's the plan. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, pay their expenses so they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what uh, they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in obedience to the law. Let me fill you in just as much as you need to know here. As we talked about in chapter 18, when a Jewish person wanted to set themselves apart for worship to God, very often what they would do was take a Nazarite vow. Number six, it gives all the details here, but in short, basically it meant you don't cut your hair, you don't drink wine, you don't eat grapes or any grape products for the period of 30 days. You set yourself apart from these things that normal people do every single day. This is a big deal. And it was even actually a costly deal, so much so that people often didn't have the money to, to complete a Nazarite vow. And so they would go out and they would find a sponsor, someone who could help pay their expenses throughout this time. That they, they had to take off work, and now they got to go finish their vow. They got to go to the temple. They got to pay for these offerings and pay for this haircut that has, you know, this costs a little more than an average everyday haircut. This is a big deal. So we need sponsors here. So here the elders of the church are thinking, okay, this is a very devout thing, Jewish thing to do. So uh, we know that you know, some, of these, some of these Christians out there, they're, you're, you're suspect in their mind. So if you participate in this, you know what, let's, let's not just have you sponsor one guy, sponsor four guys, and then you yourself go get purified too, because you, you've been out there in Gentile territory, you might as well be purified as well, that's a good thing for you to do. And then you're going to show everybody that these rumors that they heard were not true. Of course, they also wanted to make clear that we're not, by saying this, we're not going back on our previous decision. When we were back in Acts chapter 15, we talked about how Paul brought to their attention, there's all these Jewish believers coming to Christ, what do I do with them? And they say, you know what, they don't need to adopt all the Jewish customs, but have them live morally. And they stipulated those things in a letter that they had Paul deliver. That's what verse 25 is all about. So here you have it, Okay. There's the response from the Jerusalem church. Let me ask you something. How do you feel about that? What do you think of this plan? Does it sound like a good idea? Does it sound reasonable? Or does it sound ridiculous? If you were in Paul's shoes, would you have been offended? Would you have been angry? Maybe disgusted? infuriated. I think that if I were in Paul's shoes, I would have been really upset. And I think I would have been thinking things like this. I would have been thinking, who do you, think, who do you, who do you think you are? And who do you think I am? Did you not hear the complete report that I just gave you of how God has validated my ministry time and time and time again? Do you see what he's done here? Haven't I done enough? And it, and what about you? 
Isn't this your job? This is your church. It's your people here. You are their shepherds. Don't you think maybe you've been a little too soft? Maybe you should have nipped this in the bud when you heard this rumor going around because you know you, you, you've, you've validated my ministry back in Acts 15 when we met last. <laughs> Why did you wait for me to arrive so that I can fix the problem myself? Is that what was going through Paul's mind? We know he goes along with their plans, right? But does he march to the temple, dragging his feet and swearing under his breath? Is that what happened? That's not what happened. And someone says, wait a second, wait a second. We aren't given any information to what Paul was thinking here. How do you know what Paul was thinking? And I have to say, you're right. Luke doesn't tell us what Paul was thinking, but that's okay because we already know what Paul was thinking and how he thinks because of how he told us to live in the letters that he has written to us. You know what he's doing? He's putting his own pride and his own honor and his own freedom and even his preferences aside for the sake of of God's calling on his life. Remember what he told the Christians in Caesarea? He says, I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Recall what he said to the elders who visited him in Miletus? I don't account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Anything and everything for the sake of sharing the good news of Jesus with people. That's what Paul's all about here. Were there people in Jerusalem, Jews in Jerusalem, who had yet to come to faith in Jesus Christ? You better believe it. Was it Paul's desire to do anything that he could possibly do so that he might have the privilege of sharing Jesus with these people? Absolutely. Look what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 9. He said, though I am free from all, I'm not constrained here, but I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself, being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means, I might save some." I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. This was it. Paul's all about the glory of God, yes, but he made it very, very clear. I'm all about bringing God glory as I give of myself in every way, shape, or form, other than compromising what is true, in every way, shape, or form so that people might hear the gospel. And if that means setting his personal preferences and his rights, even his freedom aside, that's what he's going to do. Paul gladly went to the temple to give these guys a haircut. No doubt in my mind, because 
that was a way for him to open the door to be able to share Jesus in whatever little time he had left when to open the door to share Jesus in Jerusalem. And he's going to go for it. I think there's one more motivation here that's important for us to, to key in on. And that is the motivation that we don't often hold of very high value or maybe don't think about enough at church, and that is the unity of God's people. You know, there's seven things that the Lord hates in Proverbs chapter 6. Seven things. Do you know what the last one is? He that sows discord among brothers. We live in a time where personal autonomy and preference and freedoms, are, they're preserved and protected at all costs, at least among some. We'll gladly separate ourselves. We'll, we'll, we'll stir up even a fight. We'll rally people together to take our side at the expense of keeping peace or encouraging unity. It happens in churches all the time, doesn't it? But you know, before we find ourselves at the the heart of some source of division. We've got to remember, God hates that. He hates it. I mean, think about it. The people that he gave his son's life for to purify and bring together and unite as the body of Christ we're going to divide? <laughs> really? Paul understood that. And that's why he encouraged the Christians in Philippi. If there's any in encouragement in Christ, if you, have you been encouraged in Christ? Believing in Christ? Okay. Any comfort from love? Have you experienced the love of God? Okay. Any participation in this one Holy Spirit? God dwelling in you. Have you seen him begun to, to transform you? What about that person over there? That person over there. Have you seen them? God used them and, and used, put gifts inside of them and is now blessing the church through them? What about you? Okay. If there's any affection, any sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Do you see that, church? Do you see it? The peace and unity of the church, of our church, should be a very high priority. And we should be willing to set aside our pride and our rights, our preferences and interests. Hmm. We have here in Acts 21, 70 to 26, a prime example of a Christian who's all out for the glory of God and the good of his people. Everything for the sake of leading people to Jesus. Everything for the sake of the good and the unity and the, the flourishing of Christ's church. Of course, we know that in the end, this is all about results, right? 
Paul's submission to the Jerusalem elders, well, it's, it's going to be worth it because all of the danger that was predicted in Jerusalem, that's all going to go away, and he's going to have this incredible opportunity to preach Christ in Jerusalem for the rest of his days. It's just a, the, book, the rest of the book of Acts is incredible to see God's blessing upon blessing upon blessing, and it was all because of his obedience here, right? Well, if that's what you think, don't read verse 27. Friends, the choices we make, the sacrifices, the the humility, the the sufferings that we endure as followers of Jesus, they're not about attaining desired results. They are about obedience. They're about worship. They're about running the race set before us, looking only to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. They're about sharing in the sufferings of our Savior, yes, even to the point of death, that we might reach the finish line, step across and into an eternal paradise with our Savior, forward in the name of the risen King. Amen? All out for his glory and the good of his people. Let's give all we have to the spread of the king's gospel and the people that he has called to himself. So I guess it's true. Maybe we can learn something from this passage. One thing that it teaches me is that I need Jesus today just as much as I needed him from day one. And as we come to this table this morning, and as those helping serve communion come this morning, we're reminded of where it all begins and continues on as the people of God look to the cross of Christ and they say, that's what made all the difference. That's what I was trusting in back then. That's what I'm trusting in right now. It is the blood of Jesus. Because we looked some of these things that we talked about this morning, and my mind and my heart says, Jared, guilty. You are guilty of every single thing we pointed out here. And some of you are with me. And that's where we say, Lord Jesus, I confess my sin to you, and I look to what you did as being completely sufficient and satisfactory for my forgiveness and my salvation. Amen? Let's take a moment. Would you just close your eyes and bow your heads and reflect on what God is speaking to you right now. Confess your sin. Praise him for what he's done for you. Lord, we lay ourselves down before you, kneel before you. You, your body, was broken for us, sinners, and you willingly took that away, willingly, for us. Thank you, God. Thank you for the empty 
across the empty tomb. Oh, God, we are yours for eternity. Thanks for listening to this message from Bethany Bible Fellowship. For more resources, visit our website at bbfoc.org.